Chapter 5 of the Dealings of Captain Sharkey and Other Stories of Pirates by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The Slapping Sal. It was in the days when France's power was already broken upon the seas, and when more of her three deckers lay rotting in the Medway than were to be found in Brest Harbor. But her frigates and corvettes still scoured the ocean, closely followed ever by those of her rival. At the uttermost ends of the earth, these dainty vessels, with sweet names of girls or of flowers, mangled and shattered each other for the honor of the four yards of bunting which flapped from the end of their gaffs. It had blown hard in the night, but the wind had dropped with the dawning, and now the rising sun tinted the fringe of the storm racks, and it dwindled into the west and glinted on the endless crest of the long green waves. To north and south and west lay a skyline which was unbroken save for the spout of foam when two of the great Atlantic seas dashed into each other into spray. To the east was a rocky island, jutting out into craggy points, with a few scattered clumps of palm trees, and a pennant of mist streaming out from the bare, conical hill which capped it. A heavy surf beat upon the shore, and at a safe distance from it, the British thirty-two-gun frigate Leda, Captain A. P. Johnson, raised her black, glistening side upon the crest of a wave, or swooped down into an emerald valley, dipping away to the norward under easy sail. On her snow-white quarter-deck stood a stiff, little brown-faced man, who swept the horizon with his glass. "'Mr. Wharton!' he cried with a voice like a rusty hinge. A thin, knock-kneed officer shambled across the poop to him. "'Yes, sir. I've opened the sealed orders, Mr. Wharton.' A glimmer of curiosity shone upon the meager features of the first lieutenant. The Leda had sailed with her consort, the Dido, from Antigua the week before, and the admiral's orders had been contained in a sealed envelope. We were to open them on reaching the deserted island of Sombrero, lying in north latitude 18, 36. West latitude sixty three twenty eight. Sombrero bore four miles to the northeast from our port bow when the gale cleared, Mr. Morton. The lieutenant bowed stiffly. He and the captain had been bosom friends from childhood. They had gone to school together, joined the navy together, fought again and again together, and married into each other's families. But as long as their feet were on the poop, the iron discipline of the service struck all that was human out of them and left only the superior and the subordinate. Captain Johnson took from his pocket a blue paper, which crackled as he unfolded it. The thirty-two-gun frigates Leda and Dido, Captains A.P. Johnson and James Monroe, are to cruise from the point at which these instructions are read to the mouth of the Caribbean Sea, in the hope of encountering the French frigate La Glorie, 48, which has recently harassed our merchant ships in the quarter. Her Majesty's frigates are also directed to hunt down the piratical craft known sometimes as the Slapping Sal and sometimes as the Harry Hudson, which has plundered the British ships as per margin, inflicting barbarities upon their crew. She's a small brig carrying ten light guns, with one twenty-four pound carronade forward. She was last seen upon a twenty-third ultramaridian to the northeast of the island Sombrero. Signed, James Montgomery, Rear Admiral, HMS Colossus, Antigua. We appear to have lost our consort, said Captain Johnson, folding up his instructions and again sweeping the horizon with his glass. She drew away when we reefed down. It would be a pity if we met this heavy Frenchman without the dino, Mr. Warden, eh? The lieutenant twinkled and smiled. She has eighteen pounders on the main and twelve on the poop, sir, said the captain. She carries four hundred to our two hundred and thirty-one. Captain de Milon is the smartest man in the French service. Oh, Bobby boy, I'd give my hopes of my flag to rub my side up against her. He turned on his heel, ashamed of his momentary lapse. Mr. Wharton, said he, looking back sternly over his shoulder, get those square sails shaken out and bear away a point more to the west. A brig on the port bow, came a voice in the forecastle. A brig on the port bow, said the lieutenant. The captain sprang upon the bulwarks and held on by the mizzen shrouds, a strange little figure with flying skirts and puckered eyes. 
The lean lieutenant craned his neck and whispered to Smeaton, the second, while officers and men came popping up from below and clustering along the weather rails, shading their eyes with their hands, for the tropical sun was already clear of the palm trees. The strange brig lay at anchor in the throat of a curving estuary, and it was already obvious that she could not get out without passing under the guns of the frigate. A long, rocky point to the north of her held her in. "'Keep her as she goes, Mr. Wharton,' said the captain. "'Hardly worth while our clearing for action, Mr. Smeaton, but the men can stand by the guns in case she tries to pass us. Cast loose the bow-chasers and send the small armsmen to the forecastle.' A British crew went to its quarters in those days with the quiet serenity of men in their daily routine. In a few minutes, without fuss or sound, the sailors were knotted round their guns, the marines were drawn up and leaning on their muskets, and the frigate's bowsprit pointed straight for the little victim. "'Is it the slapping sal, sir?' "'I have no doubt of it, Mr. Wharton.' "'They don't seem to like the look of us, sir. They've cut their cables and are clapping on sail.' It was evident that the brig meant struggling for her freedom. One little patch of canvas fluttered out above another, and her people could be seen working like madmen in the rigging. She made no attempt to pass her antagonist, but headed up the estuary. The captain rubbed his hands. She's making for shoal water, Mr. Wharton, and we shall have to cut her out, sir. She's a footy little brig, but I should have thought a fore and after would have been more handy. It was a mutiny, sir. Ah, indeed. Yes, sir, I heard of it at Manila. A bad business, sir. Captain and two mates murdered. This Hudson, or Harry Hudson, as they call him, led the mutiny. He's a Londoner, sir, and a cruel villain has ever walked. His next walk will be to execution dock, Mr. Wharton. She seems heavily manned. I wish I could take twenty top men out of her but they would be enough to corrupt the crew of the Ark, Mr. Wharton. Both officers were looking through their glasses at the brig. Suddenly, the lieutenant showed his teeth in a grin, while the captain flushed a deeper red. That's Harry Hudson on the after-rail, sir. The low, impertinent blackguard. He'll play some other antics before we are done with him. Could you reach him with the long eighteen, Mr. Smeaton? Another cable length will do, sir. The brig yawed as they spoke, and as she came round, a spurt of smoke whiffed out from her quarter. It was a pure piece of bravado, for the gun could scarcely carry halfway. Then, with a jaunty swing, the little ship came into the wind again, and shot round a fresh curve in the winding channel. "'The water's shoaling rapidly, sir,' repeated the second lieutenant. "'There's six fathoms by the chart. Four by the lead, sir. When we clear the point, we shall see how we lie. Ha! I thought as much. Lay her to, Mr. Wharton. Now we have got her at our mercy.' The frigate was quite out of sight of the sea now at the head of the river-like estuary, and she came round the curve the two shores that were seen to converge to a point about a mile distant. In the angle, as near shore as she can get, the brig was lying with her broadside toward her pursuer, and a wisp of black cloth streaming from her mizzen. The lean lieutenant, who had reappeared upon deck with a cutlass strapped to his side and two pistols rammed into his belt, peered curiously at the ensign. "'Is it the Jolly Roger, sir?' he asked. But the captain was furious. "'He may hang where his breeches are hanging before I have done with them,' said he. "'What boats will you want, Mr. Wharton?' We should do it with a launch and a jolly boat. Take four and make a clean job of it. Pipe away the crews at once, and I'll work her in and help you with the long eighteens. With a rattle of ropes and the creaking of blocks, the four boats splashed into the water. The crews clustered thickly into them, barefooted sailors, stolid marines, laughing middies, and the sheets of each the senior officer with her stern schoolmaster faces. The captain, his elbows on the binnacle, still watching the distant brig. Her crew were tracing up the boarding netting, dragging round the starboard guns, knocking new portholes for them, and making every preparation for a desperate resistance. In the thick of it, a huge man, bearded to the eyes with a red nightcap upon his head, was straining and stooping and hauling. The captain watched him with a sour smile, and then snapping up his glass, he turned upon his heel. For an instant, he stood staring. "'Call back the boats!' he cried in a thin, creaking voice. "'Clear away for action there! Cast loose those main-deck guns! Brace back the yards, Mr. Smeaton, and stand by to go about when she has way enough!' 
Round the curve of the estuary was coming a huge vessel. A great yellow bowsprit and white-winged figurehead were jutting out from the cluster of palm trees, while high above them towered three immense masts and the tricolored flag floating superbly from the mizzen. Round she came, the deep blue water creaming under her forefoot, until her long, curving backslide, her line of shining copper beneath and of snow-white hammock above, and the thick clusters of men who peered over her bulwarks were all in full view. Her lower yards were slung, her ports triced up, and her guns run out all ready for action. Lying behind one of the promontories of the island, the lookout men of the glory upon her shore had seen the cul-de-sac into which the British frigate was headed, so the Captain de Milan had served the Lita as Captain Johnson had the slapping sal. But the splendid discipline of the British service was at its best in such a crisis. The boats flew back, their crews clustered aboard, they were swung up at the davits, and the fall ropes made fast. Hammocks were brought up and stowed, bulkheads sent down, ports and magazines open, the fires out in the galley, and the drums beat the quarters. Swarms of men set the headsail and brought the frigate round, while the gun crews threw off their jackets and shirts, tightened their belts, and ran out their eighteen-pounders, peering through the open portholes at the stately Frenchman. The wind was very light, hardly a ripple showed itself upon the clear blue water, but the sail blew gently out as the breeze came over the wooden banks. The Frenchman had gone about also, and both ships were now heading slowly for the sea under fore and aft canvas, the glory a hundred yards in advance. She luffed up to cross the leader's bows, and the British ship came round also, and the two rippled slowly on in such silence that the ringing of ramrods as the French marines drove home their charges clanged quite loudly upon the ear. "'Not much sea-room, Mr. Wharton,' remarked the captain. "'I have fought actions in less, sir. We must keep our distance and trust to our gunnery. She's very heavily manned, and if she got alongside, we might find ourselves in trouble. I see the shackles of soldiers aboard of her. Two company of light infantry from Martinique. Now we have her. Hard a port, and let her have it as we cross her stern.' The keen eye of the little commander had seen the surface ripple, which told of a passing breeze. He had used it to dart across the big Frenchman and rake her with every gun as he passed. But once past her, the leader had to come back into the wind and keep out of shoal water. The maneuver brought her on the starboard side of the Frenchman, and the trim little frigate seemed to heel right over under the crashing broadside which burst from the gaping ports. A moment later, her topmen were swarming aloft to set her topsails and royals, and she strove to cross the glory's bows and rake her again. The French captain, however, brought his frigate's head round, and the two rode side by side with an easy pistol shot, pouring broadsides into each other in one of those murderous duels which, could they all be recorded, would model our charts with blood. In that heavy tropical air, with so faint a breeze, the smoke formed a thick bank round the two vessels, from which the topmasts only protruded. Neither could see anything of its enemy save the throbs of fire in the darkness, and the guns were sponged and trained and fired into the dense wall of vapor. On the poop and forecastle, the marines, and two little red lines, were pouring into their volley, but neither they nor the seamen gunners could see what effect their fire was having. Nor, indeed, could they tell how far they were suffering themselves, for, standing at a gun, one could but hazily see upon the right and the left. But above the roar of the cannon came the sharper sounds of piping shot, the crashing of riven planks, and the occasional heavy thud as spar or block came hurling onto the deck. The lieutenants paced up and down a line of guns, while Captain Johnson fanned the smoke away with a cocked hat and peered eagerly out. "'This is rare, Bobby,' said he as the lieutenant joined him, then suddenly restraining himself. "'What have we lost, Mr. Wharton?' "'Our main topsail yard and our gaff, sir.' "'Where's the flag?' "'Gun overboard, sir. "'They'll think we've struck. "'Lash a boat's ensign on the starboard arm of the mizzen cross jackyard. "'Yes, sir.' A round shot dashed a binnacle to pieces between them. A second knocked two marines into a bloody, palpitating mash. For a moment the smoke rose, and the English captain saw that his adversary's heavier metal was producing a horrible effect. The Lita was a shattered wreck. 
Her deck was strewn with corpses. Several of her portholes were knocked into one, and one of her eighteen-pounder guns had been thrown right back onto her breech and pointed straight up into the sky. The thin line of marines still loaded and fired, but half the guns were silent, and the crews were piled thickly round them. "'Stand by to repel boarders!' yelled the captain. "'Cutlasses, lads! Cutlasses!' roared Wharton. "'Hold your volley till they touch!' cried the captain of marines. The huge loom of the Frenchman was seen bursting through the smoke. Thick clusters of boarders hung upon her sides and shrouds. A final broadside leapt from the ports, and the mainmast of the Lita, snapping short off a few feet above the deck, spun into the air and crashed down upon the port guns, killing ten men and putting the whole battery out of action. An instant later the two ships scraped together, and the starboard bower anchor of the glory caught the mizzen chains of the Lita upon the port side. With a yell the black swarm of boarders steadied themselves for the spring. But their feet were never to reach the bloodstained deck. For somewhere there came a well-aimed whiff of grape, and another, and another. The English marines and seamen, waiting with cutlasses and musket behind the silent guns, saw with amazement the dark masses thinning and shredding away. At the same time, the port broadside of the Frenchman burst into a roar. "'Clear away the wreck!' roared the captain. "'What the devil are they firing at? Get the guns clear!' panted the lieutenant. "'We'll do them yet, boys!' The wreckage was torn and hacked and splintered until first one gun and then another roared into action. The Frenchman's anchor had been cut away, and the Lita had worked herself free of the fatal hug. But now, suddenly, there was a scurry up the shrouds of the glory, and a hundred Englishmen were shouting themselves hoarse, They're running! They're running! They're running! And it was true. The Frenchman had ceased to fire, and was intent only upon clapping on every sail that he could carry. But that shouting hundred could not claim it all as their own. As the smoke cleared, it was not difficult to see the reason. The ships had gained the mouth of the estuary during the fight, and there, about four miles out to sea, was the leader's consort bearing down under full sail to the sound of the guns. Captain de Milan had done his part for one day, and presently the glory was drawing off swiftly to the north, while the Dido was bowling along in her skirts, rattling away with her bow-chasers, until a headland hid them both from view. But the Lita lay sorely stricken. With her mainmast gone, her bulwarks shattered, her mizzen topmast and gaff shone away, her sails like a beggar's rags, and a hundred of her crew dead and wounded. Close beside her was a mass of wreckage floating upon the waves. It was the stern post of the mangled vessel, and across it, in white letters on the black ground, was painted the slapping sow. "'By the Lord! It was the brig that saved us,' said Mr. Wharton. Hudson brought her into action with the Frenchman, and was blown out of the water by a broadside. The little captain turned on his heel and paced up and down the deck. Already his crew were plugging the shot holes, nodding and splicing and mending. When he came back, the lieutenant saw a softening of the stern lines about his eyes and mouth. "'Are they all gone?' every man they must have sunk the wreck the two officers looked down at the sinister name and at the stump of wreckage which floated in the discolored water something black washed to and fro beside the splintered gaff and a tangle of halyards it was the outrageous ensign and near it a scarlet cap was floating he was a villain but he was a briton said the captain at last he lived like a dog but by god he died like a man End of chapter five